Amen, Jackie. You know what? In the book of Joel, it says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. So, uh, Jackie, listen, anytime you feel like God's got a message for you, we'll talk about it, all right? You might have, uh, it might be a nice change of pace there. And uh, I bet Anthony can testify that you can probably preach. So, all right, guys, think, hey, uh, as far as the pastor search team and stuff, that is to pray for those guys. They are wrestling with some hard questions. Our last, was it our last meeting? It was three hours long. But it just seems so short because you guys are all so wonderful. But, it, but they're meeting long, hard, wrestling with some, some tough questions. So that, remember, they're doing the, a lot of the footwork so that when they present somebody to the church, you'll have ample time to do your own research, stuff like that. But they're just kind of going through and, and, and doing the, the weeding process. And it is difficult. And it, it takes a lot of prayer and a lot of discernment. So I know they appreciate your prayers there very much. So thank you. Well, today we're going to talk about something that, um, that a lot of people don't like pastors to talk about. No, it's not on giving. By the way, I am going to speak on that next week, though, so just that's your warning right there, okay? But I want to talk about sharing your faith, about witnessing or about evangelism, those kinds of things. And I want you to think with you for a moment, why is it that we're afraid of sharing our faith? You know, I, I, I know it's an apocryphal story, but a, a man was feeling that, he was, that God was leading him to share his faith. He was feeling convicted about it. And so he just said, okay, Lord, today, if you'll show me someone that, just, just point out, make it clear, give me a sign, Father, if I should share my faith with somebody. And he gets on a bus to go to work. And uh, as he's riding the bus, he's looking around praying and says, God, just give me a sign. And a man sits down next to him. He says, okay, Lord, is this the sign? And he, he hesitates. And then as they're riding along, the man starts, starts crying. And then he starts sobbing. And the other man is like, okay, Lord, is this the sign? Is this what I should do? I don't, I don't know. And then finally the man just goes, oh, if I could just find God, if I just knew where God, he turns to the guy and says, could you tell me where I could find God? And the man says, he prays, Lord, if this is a sign, then turn the bus driver into an armadillo. I mean, okay, I thought it was a dumb joke too. But anyway, but that's how, that just illustrates how bad it is sometimes that we try to find any excuse not to share our faith. Why is it? Well, I think for me, and I think for a lot of people, some of the answers are, one, I'm afraid of not having the right answer, okay? That's, that's true. Like, am I, am I going to screw it up? Am I going to wind up turning them away? Am I going to wind up? I could never be a doctor because I'd always be second-guessing. Am I giving somebody the wrong medicine? That kind of thing. Uh, for some of us, it's the fear of being rejected. It's like we don't want to be, you know, we just can't handle the rejection of it. Uh, some people are afraid of offending somebody, making somebody angry. Uh, and then I'll have to admit, this is probably the worst one for me, but it is a true one for me, too. And this one, I'm confessing to you right now, probably my biggest hindrance in praying is sometimes I just feel like I'm so busy and just think, do I have time in my day to stop and share my faith with somebody? And that is like the dumbest reason ever. But I find myself facing that sometimes and, and continually being convicted over that, going like, oh, Lord, you know, it's, it, it's just, it's, it's crazy. But we can all find all sorts of excuses. We all have our favorite one. Well, today we're going to look in Acts chapter 16, and I'm going to look at three ways to make witnessing easier. So that's what we're going to talk about is making witnessing easy. And so we find it in Acts chapter 16. So let's pray before we get into the scripture. Uh, Father, we want to be better witnesses, Father. We, we, we really do. And so, Father, we just ask that you would guide our hearts today as we continue in worship, Father. Thank you for the music we've had Thank you for the sense of your presence already. Thank you for the camaraderie of our fellowship here. But now, Father, guide us to hear your spirit as we look at what your 
servants did in the first century. Help us learn from that what we can do to serve you better and to love you more here. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, because we're looking at a longer passage today, we're going to kind of go through the scripture reading with each point. So the first point I want to make is, the first thing I'm going to say is, witness to people who are most likely to listen to you. That seems like that ought to be sort of common sense, but it really, it plays out really well here in this scripture passage. So let's go to Acts chapter 16. We're going to start with, with verse 11. We're picking up, we were at verse 10 yesterday, and we're going to go almost through the end of the chapter here. Uh, so before we read the scripture passage, it's up there. I want to remind you what's going on here. Paul and, oh, sorry, I, thank you. If, if you don't have an outline for today, I have it here. We did a little handout. So if you still need a, a handout, raise your hand and the, and the ushers the, will get you one, okay? So you don't have to take notes, but sometimes that helps people pay a little bit better attention. So is anybody still missing one that they can get that? And that might help you just follow along a little bit better. If not, it makes great paper airplanes for later after service, not during service, okay? Um, so does anybody need, all right. Thank you. Just have your hand. Okay, great. So let me set the stage for you. Remember last week, uh, Paul and uh, Silas and Timothy are trying to go through Asia Minor, and they felt directed by God in different, different areas, didn't know where to go. They tried to go into, into uh, w- Western Asia. They tried to go up north towards the Black Sea, but the Spirit of God did not let them go either place and got them to the, to the edge of Asia Minor, the far as they could go in Asia, and Paul gets his vision from a man from Macedonia over in Europe to come over there and help us. So this is the first time that the gospel has jumped from Asia over into, into Europe. Again, this whole message of the book of Acts is them getting further away from being a Jewish-based, Jerusalem-based religion to, being, uh, to be, having a message that Jesus died for all people everywhere. And so they're about to jump to a new continent and this is where we pick up in, chapter, in verse 11 of chapter 16. So it says, From Troas, that's the city in Asia Minor where they were, <clears throat> we put out to sea, to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, a leading city of the district of Macedonia. <clears throat> Sorry. So Macedonia is like the state or the province. Philippi was the major city there. We stayed in that city for several days. On the Sabbath day, we went outside the city gate, by the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women gathered there. A God-fearing woman, that was a key word they used in the the Jewish people used for somebody who tried to follow God but was not necessarily Jewish. So a God-fearing woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, was listening. The Lord opened her heart to respond to what Paul was saying. After she and her household were baptized, she urged us, if you consider me as a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Now, what's going on here? Well, Paul and Silas go to the, to, and, and Timothy with them, and Luke. We found out Luke joined them in the previous verse, in, in verse 10. So that's where you see the we coming. So Luke is with them at this point, too. So they take the good news to this new land. Now, I've got a map here to show you, just a little simple map to show you where it looks like there. So there they are, Troas, that's in Asia Minor. And they, so they came over there, Samothrace was another region there, so they came into the area of Neapolis and, and Philippi. Now Philippi was a major, major city that was, in fact, the church that was founded in Philippi, I'll tell you a little spoiler here, became Paul's, probably Paul's favorite church of any of the church. He uses the word love and joy with that church in the, in the book of Philippians more than any other. And so this was just one of, a place that was a blessing for him. He loved it, but 
And Philippi was a major city at that point. In fact, Philippi was a Roman colony. Now, that's different from just being a, under Roman rule or in a Roman province. In other words, if you were a citizen of Philippi, you were also considered a citizen of Rome. <clears throat> they followed all the Roman laws. So like in Jerusalem, they could still follow their, their, their Jewish laws, their laws of that area. They had certain Roman laws they had to follow, but it wasn't exactly the same as living in Rome. If you can kind of think of it this way, if you ever watched or, or read the Hunger Games, and the, 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 the rules in the capital were different than they were out in the provinces, that's pretty close to what it was like. Well, Philippi was like just living in Rome itself. If you were born in Philippi, you were born a Roman citizen with all rights and all, um, and all privileges of being a Roman citizen. How it became a colony, just so that you know, is that's where a lot of Roman soldiers in their battles retired. And after, the, after they, they aged out, and one of the rewards they got was that they got Roman citizenship if they fulfilled their duty in the Roman Empire. And so that became a Roman colony at that point. So a very major city they're at. So this is a very crucial time. But Philippi was different from the other cities they'd gone to. In all of Asia Minor, everywhere they went, where was the first place that Paul went when he went to a city? Does anybody remember? The synagogue. He went to the synagogue. Those are those little Jewish enclaves, those Jewish little teaching worship areas that had been established 600 years earlier during the diaspora, during the time that they were spread out all over the, all over the world. But Philippi didn't have one. It wasn't a part of Asia. And that means there was less than 10, less than 10 Roman, uh, less than 10 Jewish men there in the, in the city. So they didn't have the synagogue to go to. So they're sitting there thinking, where are we going to go now? What are we going to do if we can't, if there's not a synagogue? And so they thought about it. And for some reason, the Bible doesn't tell us why. I'm sure there's a reason for it. They felt like the most likely place for people who are interested in hearing about God would be would be on the Sabbath day down by the riverside. All right, so and that's what they did. They went down to the river on the on the morning of the Sabbath, looking for people who were worshiping God there. And lo and behold, they found some people, and they found some people there, and they had their very first convert in Europe, which is a lady named Lydia. And Lydia was an influential woman in the area. In fact, it tells us that she was a dealer in purple cloth. Does anybody know what that means about her when she says she was a dealer in purple cloth? It meant she was probably pretty rich. She's probably well off because purple was the most difficult dye to reproduce. It usually came from, the, from, the, from crustaceans that had to be gathered and ground up. And it took a lot of work to make purple dye. In fact, that's why if you look at flags of countries, especially of older countries, you'll see very few flags with purple on them because it was too hard to get the purple for the flag. And that's why purple became a royal color because only royalty could afford the purple dyes. So Lydia was probably well off, and she was from the city of Thyatira. And as we looked at last week, remember, Paul kept trying to go into the province of Asia to that little area in western, western Turkey now, and God wouldn't let him. His first convert was from a city of Thyatira, which was in Asia. So God actually started reaching back into that province of Asia where Ephesus is that Paul would go to later because of this. So they find this lady. Now, why did Lydia respond? Well, it tells us here in the scripture right away because she was already a God-fearer. She had the sense of there is a God and the God that the Jewish people worship is probably the, the, best, the best representation of who God really is. And so she was trying to worship the God of the Jews without becoming Jewish. And so it was just a very short jump for her to go from 
that Jewish God that she sort of worshipped to hearing about Jesus that the Jewish God had been preparing us for or the, the, as, as the Jews understood God, not that he was a different God, okay? So the Holy Spirit led the disciples to people who were spiritually hungry or spiritually thirsty or who were curious about knowing more about God. And so that's the first thing they went to is they said, where can we find people who are likely to be able to be responsive to the gospel? So here's a couple of principles I want you to look at from this. First, look for people who are like you and therefore more likely to listen to you. Now, that's counterintuitive of what you'll normally hear from me up here. I'm very much one of those people that says, I, you know, my favorite kind of church is a multicultural church that, that kind of illustrates that God died, that Jesus died for everybody and that all cultures have value, but, they, but all cultures are still subservient to the culture that, that God puts on us when we, when we accept Jesus as his son. And I still believe that. But I also know that people who are most like you, not necessarily your race or your culture, but basically who have your same interests, who have your same background, who travel in the same circles that you do, those are the people that are most likely to listen to you about knowing Jesus. Okay, now, uh, again, there's several ways to think about this. First, when I did a youth conference many years ago, one of the things I always try to do is get a, a bunch of different uh, ethnicities and and, and uh, and male and female and young and old on stage because I knew that once people saw people like them on stage, they were more open to the gospel. But it's also true that people that have, have interest, like, for example, um, when, when Mark and, and Hunter and I went out to, to, to do disc golf, Mark, who's much better at disc golf than I am, could relate to those guys out better. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't know things. So he related to those guys a lot better. There was a connection there. So you're going to look for people with whom you have a connection. Now, I'm going to pick on here for a moment, all right? Ashley, I'm going to pick on you at this point, okay? Because you looked up at the wrong time, all right? So, Ashley, you go to school at Minarets, right? I've done this before, but I want to illustrate it again, okay? That, Ashley, the people at Minarets are more likely to listen to you about Jesus than they are to listen to me about it. In fact, I've, I think I've said this before in some of the groups, in, in one of the messages, if I walked onto your campus tomorrow morning and started telling people about Jesus, what would happen? Any idea? I'd be thrown off campus. That's what would be what happening, okay? Because I would be breaking the law. In fact, a strange person walks into campus, they, they, they're supposed to throw you off or go into lockdown, one or the other, all right? So, so I'm not even allowed to go on campus. Same thing at your campus, right? If I walked in, you guys would be in lockdown. All right, but, so if I tried to share the gospel there, I'd be breaking the law. But Ashley, if at lunchtime or at free time, you share your faith with another, another student there, and the principal stops you, guess who's breaking the law then? The principal is. In other words, they can't allow me to share the gospel on your campus, but they can't prevent you from doing it. And the same thing for all of you guys here, okay? Same thing for every one of you. Now, if God is smart, and there's some evidence that he might be, who is God going to use to reach minarets, me or you? going to be you right so as i've said do we have saint ashley our missionary to minarets right there okay and the same thing for any of your businesses okay that i can't walk into your business and do that kind of thing some of you lived in gated communities or gated apartment complexes that i can't get into unless somebody lets me in so who's god going to use to reach those places me or you god's going to use you guys 
And that's the idea. So start looking for people you have connection with and start thinking, how can I use our connection to help bring them closer to Jesus? And look for those people that are spiritually thirsty or intellectually curious. I mentioned, um, I've mentioned before that I used to be a street magician. All right, I spent a summer doing gospel street magic on several different places around the nation. And one of the things that would happen is that we'd go into a, a crowd and I would share the gospel up there. But really, it wouldn't mean much to much people up there. In fact, I learned this when I'm sharing the gospel. As I was doing street magic, I could gather a crowd of 60 to 100 people doing magic tricks. And then when I mentioned anything that had the name of Jesus in it, the crowd would dwindle down to 30 or 40 right away. And I'd do more magic. I could build it up to 80 or 100. And then I mentioned Jesus had dwindled back down to 30 or 40. But here's where a lot of the witnessing happened. The churches that had me come in to do that gospel street magic, whether it was at Central Park or with the Santa Monica Pier or wherever it might have been, um, that, that they would be in the crowds and they would look for those people who were spiritually thirsty or intellectually curious. And they would watch for them and, and just ask the Spirit, Holy Spirit to reveal to them the people who were really intent on listening. And then they would walk up and say, ask people say, hey, what do you think about the magician? And a lot of times they'd say things like, well, he's not a very good magician, but he is really cute, or something like that, you know? Um, it, was, it was a long time ago, all right? So, um, so then, they would say, then they would say, well, I'm with, the, I'm with the group that brought them in, and I just wonder, what do you think about what he's saying about Jesus? And if the people were interested, they would engage with him at that point. It was just a simple way to find somebody they had, a, they had something in common with it. So start looking for everybody around you, Look for some way, some kind of connection where you get them to say, hey, it's a small world, isn't it? And use that as your connection to start sharing with them about Jesus. Now, I know that it's more difficult sometimes. Let's talk about relatives, for example. Okay? You may have relatives that you think, no, they're going to listen to the preacher more than they're going to listen to me because they know what I did when I was in junior high. Well, that's actually part of the beauty of it because they know what you did in junior high if they see the change that Jesus has made in your life. That's hard to argue against. Whereas they don't know anything about me. You expect a preacher to share with these things. But when, but when a regular, ordinary, real-life person, not a fake preacher up here, winds up um, sharing with them about Jesus, in the long run, they're more willing to listen. Because they expect me to talk about Jesus. But they may not be expecting you. So look for those people who are intellectually curious, spiritually thirsty, people who are like you, people you have a connection with that you can start sharing your faith. And I'm going to help you here with a little bit here, okay? Let's look at some of those, all right? First, think about people in your, your circle of friends. So I got up here, okay? So, so think about who your friends are. In fact, if you've got that sheet there, think about right now, just ask, God, are there people that I have among my friends who don't know Jesus but might be willing to just hear me talk a little bit about him? Not preach at them, not not try to just unload the whole gospel on them at once, but just start talking with them about Jesus and the changes made in my life. So think about your friends. Second, think about, uh, think about what's next here. Oh, coworkers. All right? So people that you work with. Some of those people, you have to deal eight hours a day with these people. Or for students, your classmates. And who among your coworkers might be willing at lunchtime or some of the time to understand the reason you have for the hope that is within you. That's a, out of the Bible. So who might it be? Ask God to reveal to you people. Begin to try to see them with God's eyes. Who could you share with? Let's make it, let's expand out a little bit. What about your neighbors? 
Are there, now, listen, I'm not trying to make us feel guilty. I know I've got some neighbors that I've had for a long time that I still have not yet shared my faith with. I have tried to engage them in conversation and because of some language difficulties and things like that, but also because of my, because we live in, a, live in a neighborhood where everybody has a garage and we drive into our garage, close the garage door, we don't see them. And stuff. So I, I need to remind myself to be looking for opportunities. And you never know. I, my next door neighbor, I'll tell you a quick story. Um, Catholic background was a God-fearer, but I didn't feel like they really knew Jesus as well, and I kept looking for opportunities to witness to them, never did do a good job, and one day I found out that they had attended a church nearby and made a profession of faith in Jesus, and I, I, there's part of me like, oh man, I missed the blessing, wow, but I'm also rejoicing with them. Talking with my neighborhood, my neighbor just last week, and uh, they were talking about what's going on at church, we're having a spiritual conversation, and she said to me, you don't remember, said, maybe you don't remember, said, oh, she actually said, remember that Bible you guys gave me? And I don't remember giving her a Bible. So we did have some kind of spiritual conversation. I just didn't lead her to Jesus at that point. But she said, I still take that Bible with me every day. I read it every day. And that, so I, hopefully some way of what we did helped, helped move her toward the place where she was eventually able to respond to Jesus. So all I'm saying in that is look for opportunities to lead somebody to Jesus, but it's not about that. It's about engaging them in a spiritual conversation that might move them closer to Jesus. The Bible says some people water, some people plant, some people harvest. And so never worry about that, that if you aren't able to lead them to a quote-unquote profession of faith in Jesus, that's the very evangelical thing, signing your name on the dotted line. That's not what it's about. It's about moving them closer to Jesus, helping them become more like him, and letting God worry about whether it's time to have them make that profession of faith or not, okay? Hopefully it'll be with you, but it might be with somebody else. So that with neighbors. All right, think about teammates. What are your hobbies? What are the things that you, that you like doing, whether it's playing disc golf or regular golf or, or going to a ball game or whatever it might be? Look for people, that, for ways that you might have a spiritual conversation with some of those people. In fact, if you wrote down some names, I want to encourage you before you leave today, share them with another believer here and say, pray for me. I may see this person this week. And pray for me that I will at least be more attentive to what the Holy Spirit says to me about sharing my faith with somebody, just like Paul and Silas did. Help me be watching and looking for the people who are spiritually thirsty, intellectually curious, and ready to hear more about our Lord and Savior. Now, not everybody's going to fit in these categories, so we're going to expand our search a little bit, all right? Because God doesn't expect us to only care for people who are just like us. And again, remember, I'm not talking about ethnicity and culture in general, it could, be, it could be anything. This crosses all kinds of boundaries there. So let's look at the second thing they did. The second point of this, witness to people who have needs that you can meet. That's another thing we see happening in this passage. So we're going to p- pick up in verse 16. It said, so they were, we, once, as we were on our way to prayer, so this is a little bit later, Luke is hardly specific with times sometimes, so we don't know how much later this was, but sometime later, we're on our way to prayer, and a slave girl met us who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, she cried out, These men are, who are proclaiming to you a way of salvation are servants of the Most High God, and she did this for many days. Now, Paul was greatly annoyed. Turning to the spirit in the woman, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out right away. Now, that's as far as the scripture tells us about what happened to her at this time, except that she was saved from that. Now, 
we, we can't, there's a couple things we don't know in this passage. One, we cannot tell for certain if it was a demon possession or if it was some kind of mental illness. The Bible is very inspecific about that and uses those kind of things interchangeably. I, I do tend to believe this was a spiritual, a, a spiritual demon because of the way the, the language is written. But no matter whether it was or not, whether it was a spiritual, mainly a spiritual condition or mainly some other kind of condition that they assumed had a spiritual connection to it, the principle is the same. We, now, again, don't hear what I didn't say. I didn't say this wasn't a demonic possession or anything, okay? I'm saying the Bible, you could take it either way from the scripture here, okay? I tend to go with the, the demonic possession here at this point. But the idea is, if it's a spiritual, a spiritual problem or an emotional problem or a mental problem, that's still opportunities for us to share the message of Jesus. So that's one thing we don't know here. Second thing is, the Bible does not tell us specifically that this woman actually made a profession of faith in Jesus at this point. Because that wasn't something that they really talked about in the same kind of terms we do today in the Bible. But I think we can make a pretty good assumption because in, in most of the Bible stories where there is a healing of this kind, it comes with receiving Jesus, believing in Jesus. So I think it's a good assumption, even though the Bible doesn't speak specifically of it here, that the woman believed in Jesus at this point. So we're going we're gonna to make that assumption at this point. So here's what we're saying. Now, this woman is following them around, and it looks like she's praising them. Why Paul got annoyed, it's confused me for a while. Like, why would she be saying, like, she was being helpful. These are people who are servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. And so, said she followed him around many times. But, for some reason, they annoyed Paul. Here's my best guess at this. And again, guys, we're using a little bit of conjecture here. The Bible's not real clear on this. And I always try to tell you that. Okay, when I'm making some guesses on this, that we, we have to do that with several things. The Bible doesn't tell us exactly how she was doing this. But my guess is, rather than praising him, she was probably mocking them. And it's hard to get that across in a tone. That, that she was saying, oh, these people, they're servants of the Most High God. Listen to them. She's just going on. Like you would see if you saw a person that was in public that was obviously unstable for some reason. I think that's the kind of thing that was going on there. Because for some reason, whether she was praising them or whether she was mocking them, she was distracting people from it, and she was annoying them, and she was getting in their way. And so it took that annoyance for Paul to say, I'm going to take care of this and have this woman be healed. But he still met her need. Now, a good example I can think of this is, again, back when I was doing street magic. And again, I'm not bragging about that. It wasn't a big deal. I did it for one summer as a part of a mission program. You know, it was, it, I mean, that's all it was. It was during my, my in my mid-20s uh, as, as when I was doing mission work. But uh, we were in Dallas, and this guy started following us everywhere we went. It, it showed, and he kept, he kept pulling me off to the side and wanting to share magic tricks with me and talk. And he, would, and he was very distracting. In fact, people would pay attention to him sometimes rather than pay attention to what we were doing, trying to share the gospel. And he kept showing up at every at every thing that we did in downtown Dallas. And I had no idea. I thought he was a street guy. I thought he was a homeless person at first. Then I noticed he had a ring on his finger that was a Dallas Cowboys helmet and the star where the star is there, that was a diamond. And I thought, well, this guy's not poor, but he does seem crazy. Who was that? And so I asked somebody, who is that? And I've got a picture of him right here. The guy's name was Crazy Ray. He actually worked for the Dallas Cowboys. He was an official ambassador to the, for the Dallas Cowboys. 
He was known as Whistling Ray and then became Crazy Ray. He's passed away now, but back in the 80s, he was a big fixture in Dallas, and he was a big ambassador for the Dallas Cowboys. He would show up at every game and just had these big hats on and do all this whistling stuff and, and that kind of thing, and he also did magic. Well, I had to deal, he was the same kind of thing with this one, I had to deal with that, so finally I got Ray pulled aside and shared with, with Ray about Jesus. Now, I wish I could tell you, I, it'd be so much, it wouldn't be a great story if I could say, you know, that the the, the crazy went out of Ray right then, and he accepted Jesus, and everything. No, it did not happen, all right? I, am, I do not have all that same power that Paul did. In fact, I'll tell you what. Even though I shared with Ray about Jesus, Ray's background was Jehovah's Witness. And as I taught with Ray, I discovered this. And one of the things I learned from Ray, and I'm firmly convinced of this, when Ray was about eight years old or so, some Jehovah's Witnesses knocked on his door and shared with him about their understanding of Jesus, and Ray accepted that. If it had been somebody from a church like ours that had knocked on Ray's door when he was eight years old, Ray would have been a believer in Jesus. I do believe that. Because he was a God-fearing guy, but he got the wrong message at the wrong time. Okay, so I want to say that illustrates the previous thing. Look for people who are ready and be available to them before somebody else gets to them. But also that, that Ray illustrates that thing about when, when somebody gets in the way, okay, that, that, that sometimes they have a need that needs to be met. And I did my best to, to meet Ray's need, but sometimes it just doesn't, doesn't work. But back to this woman in, in Philippi. She had a need, and the disciples met that need. They want to kind of keep that going. Look for needs when you can meet them in the lives of people. Sometimes it takes a while. When I was in grad school, uh, I used to be a lifeguard, and I know it, I look like I could not save anybody right now at all, but I used to be a lifeguard, a swim instructor, a water safety instructor, all sorts of stuff with that, and I worked at a tennis and swim club. It was a, it was a great thing in grad school, Jackie, because it takes four minutes for brain damage to set in, so I could study for four minutes, look up. If nobody was on the bottom, I could study for another four minutes, but um, hey, I never had to read, never lost anybody, but the other, other, the other lifeguards knew that I was a minister. And I would try to share with them about Jesus. The head lifeguard was one of these people that whenever I would say something about Jesus, it just, I could see her tense up. She just freaked out. And in fact, at one point, we were talking, and I said, you do know that God loves you. And she stuck her fingers in her and went, la, 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 la. She goes, I just don't want to hear that. That makes me feel guilty. I just don't want to hear it. She was so resistant to hearing about Jesus. But one day, while I was on lifeguard duty, she walked into the guard shack, very somber. And she said, my boyfriend just left me. And so she came to me to talk about it because at that moment she had a need. And she knew that I knew Jesus. And she needed comfort. She needed direction. She needed to hear a word from God at that point. And so we had set that up because of our previous relationship that when she had that need, that's when she was ready to hear and there are a lot of people out there that you can keep trying to meet their needs when they are ready. Then you might be the place that they turn. In fact, when people discover their spiritual need, when that, if you've been meeting physical needs or emotional needs in this person, and you are the best Christian they know, when they have a spiritual need, they will usually turn to the best Christian that they know. So look for ways that we can meet people's needs. All right, now, I want to tell you, there are hurting people all around us. Here in Fresno, we live in what military leaders would call a target-rich environment. 
you cannot get from here to your house without crossing the path of dozens of people that have unmet needs. And I want to encourage you with this, to reach out to these people, but not as a project or an evangelism prospect, but reach out to them as a person for whom Jesus died and whom God loves. And we are that person that brings them that touch of God's love and the message that Jesus died for them. That's part of how we witness. It's not about just bringing somebody to that point of, you know, learn the four spiritual laws or praying the sinner's prayer or whatever it is your favorite thing might be or going through the Roman road. It's about meeting their needs, showing the love of God, and letting them know that Jesus is the reason we're able to do this. So here's what I ask you to do. Think about who has needs around you. Who has needs that you can meet? And how can you begin to meet those needs? And then just as important as all the others, how can this open a door for you to to witness to them or share with them the message of Jesus? Just meeting a need is not enough. We do meet their needs. We have to remember they have a real need for Jesus that they may not realize yet. And we're always looking for that opportunity. So just so we had the, the, the list of neighbors and friends and coworkers and all that kind of stuff, add to that the, the, the names of people that you can befriend or that you can reach out to with the hands of Jesus. That's what Paul and Silas did with this woman who was, who was hurting, this woman who had a need. And then we get to the last one, which is my most, uh, the one I, I think helps me the most and I've tried to use the most myself. We can witness by converting the question. Okay, witness by converting the question. Let's pick up verse 19. We're going to go to verse 34. So this is, a, this is a longer passage, but stick with me here. All right, so back to the lady with the demon possession. When her owners realized that their hope of profit was gone, because when the demon was gone, she lost her ability to tell the future. That makes me feel like, too, this was probably truly a, a thing of demon possession. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. Bringing them before the chief magistrates, they said, These men are seriously disturbing our city. They are Jews and are promoting customs that are not legal for us as Romans. Remember, they were Roman citizens. As Romans to adopt or to practice. And the crowd joined in an attack against them. And the chief magistrates stripped off their clothes. That's a weird way to protest. But, uh, and, and ordered them to be beaten with rods. And after they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail. Ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. Receiving such an order, he put them into the inner prison and secured their feet with stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the jail were shaken, and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains came loose. That is some kind of storm right there, okay? How hard does the wind have to blow to make chains come loose? No, that had to be more than just a windstorm right there, right? That was God moving. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors, now remember the jailer was asleep here, okay? So he hadn't heard what was going on. Woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open. He drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell down, trembling before, before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. 
and they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds right away. He and his family were baptized. He and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoiced because he had come to believe in God with his entire family. Now, this one thing right here is, I think, the greatest benefit to my witnessing I've ever run across. And let's unpack this for a little bit. So Paul and Barnabas are thrown into prison. And it says, the jailer fastened their feet with stocks. Now, when we think of stocks or stockades, we think of the stuff you see, you know, in Pilgrim Place with the thing there, and they got the hands and the neck through there like that. That's what we're thinking of. That wasn't what this was. Stockades back at that point was pretty much this. They would sit the prisoners down, spread their legs about uh, as far apart as they would go, then just for good measure, about another foot after that. And then they would attach a large log in between their feet so they couldn't bring them back together, and they would be shackled to that log. So it's hard to run away when you're in that. And so it was painful. There was nothing they could do. I mean, it, they were stuck there. You could not move at all. And I guess you could have crawled and dragged, but dragged it, but that would have been about it. And so they're in pain, but they're still praising God and praying. I think that's really important to recognize at that point that they still maintain their faith, still going on great. So then this big earthquake hits, and, the, and everybody, all the prisoners are freed. It's not just Paul and Barnabas. It's everyone's chains fell off. All the prisoners are free. The jailer wakes up, doesn't really know what's going on, and sees all the prison doors open. Now, has anybody here ever been a prison guard? Uh, you have? Okay. All right. Ben, what would be your reaction at that point to find out that every prisoner was, was free at that point? Huh? Oh, wow. Okay. Um, you're a good man. I think somebody would just run to get to go. Yeah, go, go someplace where it's defensible there. Um, that's, just, that's just crazy. Well, the jailer walks in, gets his sword ready to kill himself. Why was he willing to kill himself? Right, because in his mind, there were only two options. Either all the prisoners were going to escape and they were going to kill him in the process, which is highly likely, okay? Because again, Ben, if the things are open, the, and the, I'm sure the prisoners go like, dude, it's going to be okay, just let me leave, all right? I'm not going to mess with you, all right? No, that's not what they're going to do. They would rush the jailer, overwhelm him, okay? There weren't guns back then. There was no 50 caliber on a, you know, on a turret somewhere or anything like that. It was like him and a sword, and it just it, it, it doesn't work again. I know in the movies it looks different, but trust me, one guy fighting against five or a dozen guys, even with a sword, it, it ain't going to go well for him. So he thinks, okay, I'm about to buy a painful death at the, at, the, at the hands of these guys, or if I live through it, I'm either going to have to carry out their sentences, which might mean the rest of my life in prison, or probably death. The Roman, so the Roman government was not too kind to people shirking their duty like this and letting them get out so i think he really he was so he really was ready to kill himself but paul calls out and says whoa 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 don't do that we're all here and then the guy asks this great question what must i do to be saved now there's two possible things that could happen here and again the bible doesn't tell us clearly which one it is the traditional view that i always learned growing up is the guy said oh what do i need what do i need to do to go to heaven Remember, the guy was asleep. He hadn't even heard Paul and Silas singing and, 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 and praying. He had been asleep. And I do think at most of those times when somebody's about to die, that may not be what comes to their mind at this point. 
Maybe it was. Maybe he had heard Paul and Silas witness during their flogging or something like that. So it is possible he was asking, what do I need to do to go to heaven? I believe what the guy was asking was, okay, guys, what do I need to do to get out of this alive? How do we negotiate this, okay? Come on, guys, let's, let's think it through. Let's, let's work it out. What's, what's here, okay? How, how can we do this? And if that's the question he was, ans- he was asking, that's not the question Paul answered. And I think that's why the church review would think he was asking about his salvation. Because Paul didn't answer. He didn't say, because if that was the thing he was asking, he could have said, hey, dude, it's okay. We're not going anywhere. We're going to stay right here. It's all good. Just de-escalate. It's going to be fine. You know, we're just, just relax, okay? You're, nobody's going to kill you. And that would answer the man's question. But Paul took it further and said, you want to be saved? Here's how you do it. Believe in Jesus and you will be saved. And so I think that's one of the greatest things I learned is how to convert the question. I think that's really, really important to do is not ask, is not leave it in the sense of how can I meet the, the need I have right now or, or you know, you know, what's the, what's the, you know, what's the meaning of life? And you could answer that on a very secular response. But, but you could also answer it in a very spiritual response that would help people, again, convert the question. Now, let me give you an idea. I'm going to give you a couple examples from my own mind. This is how it helped me. Uh, again, I tell these stories about my situation not because I think I'm a great example. But these happen to be things where, where it works out, where I know, where I've seen it work. So many, many years ago, I used to be a swim coach and a math tutor at a high school in San Francisco. And as a swim coach, I was not allowed to share my faith, right, Jackie? You can't, during class, share your faith, all right? Not, that's understandable. I can respect that. You know, as a person of authority, we don't want to force kids into anything like that. But I'm here at the high school, and, and, the, and the kids all found out. I remember the day they found out I was a minister. It was like, it was like watching a wildfire burn through, the, through, the, through the, the bleachers where they were, you know, to find out I was a preacher. And, uh, but, but it opened the door for me to have conversations with them at other times. So one day, I'm walking through the hall, and one of my ninth graders comes up to me, and, and I can see something wrong. So it's a Christina, what's the matter? Remember the girl's name very well. And uh, same kind of thing. I don't know why it is. My boyfriend left me. And I don't know what it is. I, when I guess something about me, I look like if, if a girl gets dumped by a guy, like that's a nice guy right there that I would never be interested in. So he's probably a safe place to talk about whatever's going on here, okay? So I'm, being, I'm, I'm a safe place for, for hurting women to go, knowing they're not going to be treated badly well it's a guy that's never you know anyway so um so she she says you know and so so i just hear her out and i start listening meeting her need and she goes why do, she says, why do things like this happen to me i was like i'm a good person she goes i like to think i'm a good christian don't you think i'm a good christian well what she wanted to hear at that point was yes christina you're a good person that's all she wanted to hear but i said to her well christina how I define Christian might be different from how you define Christian. And she said, really? How do you define Christian? Ding, 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 magic words. I just had to get out of jail a free card right there. Then I could share, there standing in the hallway by the lockers, I could share my faith with her, and they couldn't stop me because I was just answering a student's question. That's all I was doing. But I shared with Christina about the only thing that makes a person good is when Jesus comes in their life and forgives them of their sins that none of us is good in and of ourselves and that Jesus died to take to to bring us that goodness to bring us his perfect good life and now Christina didn't accept Jesus right there at that moment in the hallway 
but she did a couple of couple of weeks later and about a month later the church nearby that was that was working with at that point baptized christina but i was able to share in school about jesus why because i answered the question that i felt like she needed answered not the one she was asking that led to other times like that at at one point we were having at the same school we were having a, an athletic banquet well, not athletic banquet. We're having an athletic picnic out on the out on the field. All the all the teams were out there. So I was sitting with a swim team, and one student. Now this was San Francisco. So again, one student got onto another student for eating junk food. Okay, it wasn't you, Mark, but I know it was somebody like okay. And just and they were like, you know, why aren't you eating healthy stuff? And they they looked at me and said, I mean, they looked at this person. It's like, just don't preach to me. And then saw me and went, oh, sorry, coach. And then and then and then she said. You know, that makes me curious. Why, why do we think associate preaching with, like, getting on to somebody? I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, I, I went to church once, and the preacher was just talking about stuff like, Jesus died for you and stuff like that. It made me feel really bad and guilty and stuff. And so I said to her, and of course it was school, so I had to be careful. I said, do you really want to know why preachers say that? I said, yes. And then about seven or eight kids turned around and said, yeah, we'd love to know why that was. And I was able there at a school picnic to share with these kids about Jesus dying on the cross for them and why preachers talk about that. But it's simply because we have to start looking for opportunities that the Holy Spirit is giving us to convert the question. Wouldn't it be easy, it just, wouldn't it be great, just so easy, if people just said, if some people just came up to you and go, hey, I was wondering, how do I get to, what is this about this Jesus thing? Could you guys, could you tell me about it? Most of you could share your faith then. If somebody stopped you on the street or called you up and said, Hey, I, I heard about this plan of salvation. Do you know what that is? You know, sure, we could all do that. But most people aren't going to ask you that question. They're going to ask you some other kinds of questions. So maybe looking for opportunities to help with this. And so Mark has blessed us today. Mark, I'm going to ask you, just can you stand up here real quick model your shirt? Okay? Look at Mark's shirt he's wearing, okay? All right. Is it born squared? Okay? Which could be a little bit, maybe you were born square. I don't know. Was, was he? Was he born as a square? I don't know. But obviously, you look at that, wouldn't that make you ask, if you didn't know, have any idea with it, what is that from? Thank you, Mark, for doing That's a great shirt there for people to ask, like, what does that shirt mean? And, you know, you could answer, like, oh, it just means born again. No, it's a spiritual thing. You could just answer that. Or you could say, like, hey, can I tell you what this shirt means? Let me tell you what it means to me. You know, it doesn't mean you have to do a 30-minute sermon. I know, you're wishing I could do a 30-minute sermon, but we're about to wrap up here. But it means that was that was funny. Oh my! I have been at this church too long. We got to find a new pastor quick. Okay, I've, I've worn out my welcome. I can tell. All right, but that shirt right there, I think, is a great way of looking for opportunities like that. It doesn't mean you have to tease people. It doesn't mean you have to try to trick them in answering questions. But you just look and listen for when the Holy Spirit speaks to people in such a way that will make them want to ask a question that gives you the opportunity to tell them something about Jesus and hopefully telling them about how they can know Jesus also. So let me give you a couple of other quick examples. So some people ask like, hey, so what did you do today? Or how was your weekend or whatever? Like, You can say, well, I went to church. That would answer their question. And now this is a little bit artificial. Okay, I know this is not, following, this is not flowing out of a real conversation, so it's going to sound a little artificial. But instead you could say something like, you know what, this weekend, I learned how to, how to better communicate something that's really important to me. Can I tell you about it? And they may say, 
Oh, no, I'm not, I, don't, I don't have time to hear about it, right? Okay, fine. That's not a divine appointment that the Holy Spirit set up. Instead of that, it might be a time for them to say, yeah, tell me, I'd love to hear about it. In fact, studies have shown, I think 80% of non-Christians in one survey said they would be willing to have a spiritual conversation with a Christian if the Christian would, would, would start it and be respectful. That's all there is to it. Can you believe that? 80% of non-Christians will be willing to have a spiritual conversation with you. So, you know, one of the things I, I quit doing a lot, people ask me if I'm a Christian. Sometimes I will say, I wouldn't call myself a Christian, i call myself a Christ follower. Because Christian has such different meanings to different people, okay? You know, in fact, if people say, are you a Christian? I'm a Catholic. And I'm going to go like, well, that's not really supposed to be a different thing, you know, and maybe you can talk with them about it. But, um, but when I say a Christ follower, people might ask, why do you say it like that? And I can talk about what it means to follow Jesus and why I follow Jesus. When somebody asks you a, pol- a question about a political issue, how many of you love to get in political conversations nowadays? Oh, I would, I would rather have teeth pulled than be in any kind of political conversation because no matter what I say, I'm on the wrong side. I can guarantee it, okay? But when somebody asks you something, a political thing how about responding with what you think jesus might think about it that kind of thing so just think on your notes here what are some questions you might be asked in the course of your day and what are some ways that you could convert those questions to opening an opportunity to share your faith with somebody else now a lot of you share your faith by bringing people to church and i think that's great but you know what here's honestly as a pastor and i can say this would be true for most pastors Rather than you bringing a friend here to hear the gospel, I would rather get, you, get, a, get a text from that says, Pastor, I'm about to share my faith with my friend. Would you pray? That's what I want to hear more than anything. Yeah, bring them to church. That's great. I'm glad they're here when they come. I'm glad you do that. But what's more meaningful is to hear it from your mouth because they know who you are. They have a connection. They're willing to listen to you. So here's what you can do about this. First, pray for God's eyes and God's heart for others. When we have God's heart for others, that's when we're able to respond. I know whenever I think, I'm too, as God, I don't want to take the time to do this right now. I am not speaking out of God's heart. I know when I, when I just look at people on the outside and I'm not looking at what needs they might have and not looking at them how God loves them, I'm not looking at them through Jesus' eyes. So pray to have God's eyes and hearts for other people. The more we're able to do that, the more we become like Jesus, the easier this will be. Second, oh, first, I'm going to ask, I've got a little thing up here. This is an old friend of mine, Hal Seed, um, has a ministry down in, a church down in San Diego. And he says this, this is his prayer every day. He says, Lord, I don't ask for much, but one thing I do ask for today Give me a heart for the lost. Would you be willing to pray that in the morning when your feet hit the floor? To say, God, I'm not asking for much, but one thing I do ask today, give me a heart for the lost. That might change the way we go through our day and the way we see people. It's a hard one to pray. It's a scary prayer. Oh, gosh, how, much, how that might change you, I don't know. But just think about how seeds prayer. Lord, I don't ask for much. But one thing I do ask, give me a heart for the lost. Second, be ready for every opportunity to have a spiritual conversation. Build margin into your life where you've got 
room to be able to do that. I know, man, you leave late for work and you stop by Starbucks and you're, you know, you got just enough time to get your mocha frappe caramel costa latte, whatever it is, all right, that you get. Um, you guys hadn't heard that one before? That's so old, all right? Um, and then, and you happen to run into somebody that has a spiritual need. We don't, you don't have time for it. So maybe build margin into your life where you've got time to allow God to work. And then third, be sensitive, but be bold. To be bold. It's scary, but be bold. Push it as far as God will allow you to push it. Because God has entrusted to us the message of Jesus. In 2 Corinthians, 6, it ta- in 2 Corinthians 5, it talks about that God has made us ambassadors of his reconciliation, of his message of Jesus. We, and there may be somebody out there that you are the best place they know of to learn about Jesus. Let's pray. God, please help us to use these simple tools to share the good news about your son. Father, we thank you that Jesus died for us. We thank you for that you're entrusting us with it. Father, we know you could, you could do a much better job of sharing the message. Jesus could appear in the clouds. You could write the message across the sky. You could take over every TV station, radio station, and every internet outlet and put your message out there if you wanted to. But you've entrusted it to us to these small human vessels, Lord. We want to take that seriously, Father. We want to remember you gave us the message of salvation. Father, help us to look for ways to share the message because we want other people to know what we know, that Jesus Christ came and lived a perfect life to die for sinners like us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.